Hello everyone, <laughs> welcome <laughs> to the afternoon service, I see you all, just looking in everyone's eyes, um, hope you've had a nice weekend, summer so far, August, so, time's going so quickly I just can't grab it in any way, um, yes I just thought um, I'd open us up with a psalm, we're going to read, oh something weird, Psalm 27, you can follow along with me or you can just listen, give you a choice. Um, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise around against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in, the shelter, in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You, ha you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Shall we pray? Dear Lord God, thank you so much for your amazing incredible love for us that defines us that shapes us that changes us lord lord i pray that you would fill us again with your love lord we are sorry for when we block it out for when we think we can find better love um for when we think we don't need it lord i pray lord that you would come and we would be filled with it lord and that you would help us to change our houses our neighborhoods lord our city our country um, with the life-changing love that you have given us lord enable us and empower us to spread your gospel lord we pray uh, for just a blessing and th uh, thanksgiving over this building that you have given us lord um we i mean we haven't even been here that long and i still take it for granted lord and i do pray lord that you would help us to use this building to bless this community lord jesus um lord with with whatever you want us to lord but we pray lord that this would be a place where people come to know and love the gospel of jesus lord we pray lord for even just the 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 streets that surround us thank you that we are literally surrounded by houses by a mission field lord um we pray for our witness lord we pray that nothing would inhibit our witness lord please prepare us to be better witnesses lord um Lord, help us to love this community, to be motivated by love.
love, Lord. We pray that we would try hard to reach this community, Lord, um, and not to not be half-hearted in the way that we um, kind of wave to people or smile at people, Lord, but really be invested in this community and seek to grow relationships uh, from that. Um, Lord, thank you that you know everyone that surrounds this building and we pray, Lord, that you would speak to them, Lord, and that you would save them, Lord. Thank you that you love to save um, and you desire for all people to come to know you, Lord. We pray for this city, Lord. We pray that you would protect it, Lord Jesus. We pray, yeah, you would protect us from the virus, Lord. We pray um, that you would help um, people to be safe, Lord Jesus. Um, and we pray for this city, Lord. We pray that you would... Um, bless it, Lord, and that you would help us as churches in Norwich to be united under the same gospel and the same Lord Jesus, Lord, for one day we will all bow equal in your presence, Lord. Um, Lord, we think of people in our church who are struggling. Lord, we think of Paul Harding, Lord. Thank you so much for him and the way that he has blessed this church so much, Lord. We thank you that he loves and knows you. And Lord, that uh, he is completely in your hands, Lord. We pray for peace as he is in hospital. Lord, I pray that he would just know your peace. Lord, I pray he would be a witness to those around him, Lord Jesus. Um, and I do pray that you would work a miracle literally in his heart, <laughs> Lord, and that you you would be just with him so mightily, Lord, that although it is so difficult to visit him, Lord, I pray that he would feel so much in fellowship with the church and with you, Lord Jesus, that he would not feel alone, that you would protect him and protect Leslie Ann from many attacks of the devil, Lord Jesus. Um, and just please be with them. Lord, I just want to pray a blessing over all the children at church, Lord, um, from all the babies and pregnancies that are going on. Lord, please protect them. And I pray that you would um, be raising them into a knowledge and love of your word, Lord. And I pray that we would model that as adults, as older brothers and sisters and mothers and aunties and dads and uncles, Lord, as a family, Lord, that we would model a love for your gospel, a love for your word and a love for you um, that overflows to them, Lord Jesus, that we may be good examples that they want to follow in the footsteps of. Um, Lord, we pray for our country and our world, Lord. There is so much going on. We think of in Afghanistan, Lord, we pray a blessing there, Lord Jesus. We have no idea what is going to happen there but Lord we pray that you protect those that are vulnerable Lord we pray that you would bring peace and solution Lord we pray that you would um, overthrow evil leadership Lord and replace them with loving leadership that will have people in their heart Lord that want to seek to serve and love people Lord Jesus um, Lord we pray for our planet Lord we we know that we have been bad stewards of this planet, Lord, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to live lives that steward this planet well, Lord, um, in a way that um, we are not taking advantage of the good gifts that you have given us, but in a way that uh, treats the, the gifts you've given us well. Uh, Lord, you just please just come and bless us, Lord, today. Um, pray for all the issues that I'm sure are on people's hearts right now that I haven't mentioned, Lord, that they feel very passionate about. Thank you that you know them completely and you feel passionate about them too, Lord. You are a God that loves justice and mercy. And I pray that you would bring justice and mercy into those situations that um, have not been mentioned, Lord Jesus. Um, we pray for John. Please bless him. Um, please keep him. And I pray that you would bless the word that he is about to bring to us, Lord Jesus. Um, 
Lord, keep him and protect him from the devil. And I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen him and that he may be encouraged as he preaches and finishes preaching and goes out, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. All right. We all good? Great. So uh, I always feel funny when I come up here for second service and the timer's on the pulpit. What does that mean? Does that mean first service was just way too long? I wonder what that what means. I don't know. But I'm, I'm obedient, so I'm going to put start on there. We're going to be in Luke chapter 16. So if you want to turn to Luke chapter 16 in your Bibles, continuing to go uh, verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to talk about, we're going to see Jesus talking about everything, the thing that people most like to hear about when they come to church. Money. Isn't that everybody's favorite subject when we come to church? Yes, it's not. But this isn't, don't worry, this isn't going to be one of those days where I'm going to plead with you to send your, your, your tithe gift in or I'm going to, we're going to pass a plate. That's not what we're going to do. But what we do want to see in Luke 16, what I believe Jesus wants, wanted his first audience to hear and Luke wants us to understand, is what does it mean to, what does it mean to be free from the love of God? What does it mean to be in a place where because we believe we're in God's kingdom, that we're under his rule, that we actually are free from the love of money? What does that look like? And so we're going to look at that today. I want to give you three principles about what does it look like to be a good steward of what God gives us. So let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 16. It says, Jesus also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management. You can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his, summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill, write 80. Now, as we talk about this, it's important that we, we recognize, I, I want you guys to know ahead of time, but before we get into this too deeply, that it's very confusing about actually what is this guy doing. We're not absolutely, absolutely sure what he's doing. We don't. We, we know what he said. We, we have the words here, but we don't know exactly what he's trying to accomplish. Is this dishonest manager, or some of your versions say steward, is he simply trying to, to rip people off, rip off the manager, or rip off, sorry, the, the landowner even more? Is, is this un dishonest steward, uh, as one commentator suggested, just only kind of knocking off the part of the bill that would be his commission as the steward of the house? I mean, 
there's a lot of confusion about what it is he's actually doing. But what's not confusing is why he's doing it. In fact, it's interesting because what we saw last week in Luke chapter 15 was this famous story that we tend to call the parable of the prodigal son. We saw last week. That's not the best thing to call it, but that's what we often call it, the parable of the prodigal son. And this you could call this really is the, really the, the parable of the prodigal ma uh, manager. In fact, in verse 1, when it says that he was wasting his possessions, it's the same word that's used in chapter 15, verse 13, for wasteful, or what the, 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 the first son did when he got his inheritance. The, the idea here is that, that this guy is, has been wasting, he's been a bad steward of his boss's goods, and yet the way he responds to the issue, or his, at least his motive in why he's doing what he's doing, is something that ends up being commendable. Which is interesting. Now, what was his motive? He says clearly in verse 4, I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. In other words, he was thinking to himself, okay, I need to prepare for the future. So what happens? Verse 8. Verse 8 says that the master commended the dishonest servant or dishonored uh, honest manager for his shrewdness. And then Jesus gives this comment on the story that he tells in verse 8. He says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. He says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails you, or when it fails, sorry, that they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Now, now what's, what's he saying here? What's going on here? Well, what's happening is Jesus is basically commending uh, or using this story uh, to commend using money to prepare for our eternal future. This is what he's commending. Now, now when he uses this phrase that the, uh, when he talks about the sons of this world versus the sons of light, he's basically saying this. The sons of this world or unbelievers are actually more intentional about preparing for a temporary future than believers are about preparing for an eternal one. Think about that. It, what Jesus is saying is, listen, the, these guys put in, in effort, they are thoughtful, they think about what should I do to make sure that the, the next 50, 30, 20, 10 years of my life are as good as they can be. This is what they do. They invest their money, they save their money, they do whatever they can do to make sure that their temporal life is as good as it can be. Retirement, future plans for, for whatever are as best as they can be. But when it comes to believers, he's saying sometimes we're just not very intentional about using our money to prepare us, listen, for eternity. We don't do that. Now, he's not saying that we can buy our way into heaven. That's not at all what he's saying. We know both from Scripture and church history that's absolutely bogus. That's not at all what he's saying. But what Jesus is saying, and we'll see uh, more of this in, in just a minute, that he's saying that we can kind of steer our hearts. We can direct our affections towards heavenly things by how we invest our money. What we spend our money on really steers our hearts in the way God wants it to be. Now, we'll come back to that in a second. But notice how Jesus applies this parable. Verse 10. He says, One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, 
Who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in, which is, uh, in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? And then he says something very sober. And he says, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and the, and the one uh, devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, here's what Jesus is doing in a nutshell. He's calling the disciples, those who are listening to him on this occasion, he's calling them, listen, to love God by being good stewards of their money, by using their money well for eternal things. That's what he's calling them to do. I want you to think about this for a second. It's something that maybe some of us aren't that familiar with. The fact that, that, that in Jesus' mind, how we use our money says something about the God that we love and serve. In fact, often what happens is, especially I think, uh, well, really in any culture, but I think maybe it's easy for us to not see it in Western cultures, is that it's often easy for us to replace the love of God with the love of money. We love money instead. Now, here's something else I want you to notice about how Jesus says this. Did you notice in verse 11 and 12 how he is, he's kind of paralleling a couple things? He says in verse 11, if you've not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, and then he says in verse uh, uh, 12, if you've not been faithful in that which is another's. Do you see the, the parallel there? It's in a, in a real sense, Jesus is saying that um, when he says unrighteous wealth, I should say this clear too, he's not saying that all money's bad. The idea there is often the wealth we acquire, often when we acquire wealth, we do so with the wrong motives. That's why he's calling this unrighteous wealth, or some of your versions say mammon. But but the idea here is, is that anything that you have, any wealth that you have, is actually not your own. That's the point. That's the parallel he's drawing. The scripture says, listen to this, the scripture says in Psalm chapter 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it. You know what that means? That means every house in this neighborhood is the Lord's. It means every car and every driveway is the Lord's. It means every single person who's listening to this or sitting in this room or sitting around this neighborhood, everyone in this whole world belongs to God. Everything we possess, every, every penny in our bank accounts is the Lord's. Every moment of every day is the Lord's. It's all His. This is the point. And so when Jesus says, hey, if you can't be faithful in unrighteous mammon, which isn't even yours, how can you be faithful in true riches? Speaking of that, notice he says, who will entrust you with the true riches? And then what does he say in verse 12, right? Who will give you that which is your own? Think about this. What Jesus calls true riches, what he defines as true riches, is actually the only thing that we really possess, that really belongs to us, that we can really say is ours. Let that sink in for a second. Everything that we work hard for, everything that, that, that we have a responsibility for, and I want to be clear about this, that when I say it's not ours, it's the Lord's, it doesn't mean that you're not responsible for it. That's the whole point of stewardship. I'm not trying to say, hey, that's the Lord, so I'm going to take it for myself. No, God says thou shalt not steal, which means personal property is a real thing, okay? 
But, but what I'm saying here, listen, what I'm saying here is that he, he's talking about what's actually ours. What we retain eternally is what he calls true riches. It's really our relationship with God. It's really God himself. We see this throughout the scripture, right, where we see this in the Song of Solomon, right, which is really just a celebration of romantic love within marriage, but also a, a, is a picture or a um, kind of a metaphor for God's love for us. And, and, and in there we read this great sentence where it says, I am my beloved's and he is mine. So we often say, right, we often maybe even ask or think, do I belong to Christ? And we know that Christ has purchased us. That's what the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 6. We've been bought at a price. We belong to Christ. We're his. But guess what? He's also ours forever. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is because how does this connect then? How does this connect to the, how we use money? Well, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, when investors ruin all your retirement accounts. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Notice he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus doesn't say where your heart is, your treasure will be also. What you really love is what you really treasure. That's not what he's saying. He's saying what you invest in is where your heart goes. What do you invest your time and your talents and your treasure in? You see, this is the first principle we have to get through our heads. It's not what we have. It doesn't matter how big your house is or how nice your car is or how solid your investments are. None of that stuff matters. What really matters is what we do with it. What are we doing with it? Are we going before the God that we say we believe in, that we trust, the Jesus who's come and died for us? Do we go for him and say, Lord, I recognize this is all from you. What would you have me do with this? This is what he's calling his followers to do. It's not what we have, but how we use it that determines faithful stewardship. It's how we love God. Now, verse 14, what happens next? It says, this is Luke writing, remember? And it says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed Jesus. And Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now, now remember, this is Jesus saying this, so this is not me. Don't be mad at me, I'm just a messenger. This is what Jesus says, and I, I don't want you to miss the strength of his language, how heavy his language is. When Luke writes, listen, that the Pharisees were lovers of money, if you connect that to what we just read in verse 13, what do we read in verse 13? You will either hate the one or love the other. You can't serve God in money. Uh, so when he says they're lovers of money, what is he saying? They hate God. He's saying the Pharisees hate God. That's heavy, isn't it? That's heavy stuff. And when, listen, and when Jesus says is what is highly exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God, what's an abomination? An abomination is literally what makes God sick, what turns his stomach. And it's the things that we exalt up high. 
what we think is so great. I've been thinking about this a lot uh, this week, uh, as, as often happens when I'm preparing a message. I've been thinking a lot about my own stewardship and my own, I don't know, I guess how I use money, the things that I exalt in my own heart. And, it's, and, and even just this morning, when I got up early, to, as, I, as I usually do on a Sunday morning, I was drinking my coffee, trying to wake up. I did the stupid habit that I have. I don't know if any of you guys have this habit of getting on your phone first thing in the morning. What an absolute waste of time. For those of you who don't do it, you're free. Be thankful. I got on my phone, and guess what I did? I, 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 I punched in Google for cheapest place to buy houses in the United Kingdom. Because I have this thing that's stuck in my head that I'm not going to be secure until I own a home again. What a dumb thing. <laughs> It's, the reason I think it's a dumb thing is not because it's wrong to own a home or that I don't even, I, I still, you know, one day I might own a home again. But what's dumb about it is why would I think just owning a home is going to make me secure? I mean, there might be some in, in, in circumstances where it's better for me to do financially, but, but what is it? And, and what I found myself doing was I was thinking, this will be it. I'll finally feel like I've done something right. I'll finally feel like I've achieved a certain level. I'm meant to be here. All these things will somehow click when I get a mortgage. It's not very bright, is it? And it's amazing how our hearts think like this. I'll finally be happy when I get that sports car of my dreams. There's nothing more ridiculous looking than a guy my age driving a sports car around town. You, you look at that guy and you're going, where's your toupee? I mean, it's just a matter of time. <laughs> we do this. Oh, it'll be amazing when people will, 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 think, will, will think about the holiday I've had that I've put all the pictures on Facebook and they'll go, oh, gee, I wish I had a holiday like that. Wouldn't it be awesome when everybody envies us? But this is what we exalt, and God says that's an abomination. Nothing wrong with nice cars, even sports cars. Nothing wrong with mortgages. Nothing wrong with nice holidays. Nothing wrong with any of those things that they by themselves are not at all sinful. Here's the issue. What Jesus is speaking such harsh words about is this temptation that we all have about justifying what we do. We might call self-justification. We do things and we justify those things. And Jesus is warning against that. I've been doing ministry now for almost 30 years and, and helped a lot of people wrestle through financial pressures. All of us probably at one time in our life have experienced some of those financial pressures. And I, I've had people come into my office over the years who I, I mean, from the outside, nice homes, nice cars, and not just that, super generous. They're always saying, hey, I'm going to support five kids to go to summer camp. Or, um, hey, uh, the building project's coming up. Hey, we want to make a donation. Or, or, hey, you know, just whatever it is, they're quick to be generous. They're quick to give. Wonderful people. Then they come in the office and they're completely distraught because they realize they are in debt up to their eyeballs. Because they got in debt because they wanted to live a certain way and they wanted to look a certain way by being generous. I've, seen, I've met other people who, um, uh, who, who, who didn't get in debt. They weren't in debt. They didn't seem to be in debt at all. And, and they, in fact, they weren't in debt. And they were living sort of below their means. And they seemed to be quite happy. And things were going really well. And they were really generous with their time and with their talent and with their treasure. And then come to find out the reason they're doing that is because they're having an affair. 
And they thought, if I do all these things, that'll make up for this affair that I'm having. I've met other people who, who seem to be just absolutely broke and they're really struggling financially and we're always trying to help them as a church and they come to find out the reason that they're broke is because they have had a gambling addiction for 10 years and they never wanted to come clean about it. It's not that we don't have compassion on any of those people that I just mentioned. Of course we do. But the reason I'm bringing this up is it's amazing how in each of these kinds of circumstances people justify what they're doing. Well, you know, hey, I, I just needed a thrill, so I, I began to gamble. Well, I, I wanted to be generous, so I wanted to give, and so I got myself maxed out in debt. Well, you know, I, I, whatever the excuse would be. And listen, Jesus is warning against self-justification. Listen to this. This is what Paul talks about, his own stewardship. He's talking about his ministry, really, here. But this applies to our stewardship of everything. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writes, For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. You know, one of the things that, that I tend to justify, I confess this first service, so I'll confess it to you guys. I, I, I like to, I, I was justifying in my heart uh, multiple trips to archers. Now, if you live on the side of the city, you've probably been to archers, yes? You, you know what archers is? The award-winning uh, uh, butchers, and they have amazing hot sandwiches, great stuff over there. If you don't like meat, you wouldn't like archers, but archers is, is really good. And I would think, oh, I'm such a generous guy, I'll buy Rory and Archers. Because I'm a generous guy and I want to give. And so here's what I'll do. And you know the Lord really convicted me this week? You know why I like to buy Rory and Archers? Because I like to eat Archers. And so I, this is what I would tend to do. And the Lord really convicted me. Like, you're justifying this, but is it really right? Now, the reason I bring this up is because this brings us to the second principle. Not just that it's not about what we have, but how we spend it, but also it's not about what we justify, but about what pleases God. See, the issue when it comes to our time and talent and treasure, which is what Jesus, of course, is talking about here, is it's not so much that, that any of us can look on the outside and know how anybody else is doing. We're, we're not to judge each other on this kind of stuff. But it's this, listen, it's this reality that, that we are going to stand before God. Therefore, instead of kind of waiting, think, I hope that goes okay, what we ought to be doing is saying, Lord, this belongs to you. Therefore, what would you have me do with it? What do you want me to do with my time and my talent and my treasure? They're yours. You gave them to me. So what do you want me to do with these things? Now, then we get to verse 16 of chapter 16, and this is, there's a bit in here that's probably one of the hardest bits to both translate into English and, and to even understand. He says, the law and the prophets were until John. That's not too hard to understand. That's basically that the principles or, the, or, the, or what God wanted to say through the Old Testament ran throughout the Old Testament and kind of ended with John the Baptist, who was like, in a sense, the last Old Testament prophet. That's not hard to understand. 
He says, since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached. That's also not hard to understand. Jesus comes on the scene. What does he preach? The kingdom. He preaches that the kingdom of God has come because he's the king and he's come. All right? Here's the bit that's hard to understand. He says, and everyone forces his way into it. Now, again, loads of different theories about what this might mean. Let me just tell you what I think it means, and then we'll crack on. I think he's just basically, what he's really trying to say in this context is that everyone is kind of forced into a decision to make. Everyone is urged towards a decision. He's preaching the good news. He's preaching the kingdom of God. And everyone who hears that has to say, what am I going to do with this? Am I going to believe in Jesus? Am I going to trust the king or aren't I? But then he goes on to say this, okay, in verse 17, he says, but it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Now, now here's what he's trying to say. He's trying to say, yes, the Old Testament kind of ended with John, the old covenant. Now the, the, the gospel is the way forward. But he's not saying, therefore, the old standards are no more. He's not saying the scripture doesn't matter anymore. God's word doesn't matter anymore. No, in fact, what Jesus is doing is he's confirming the standard of God's word, including, listen, in this context, what God's word says about how we use money. Any of you guys here ever read the book of Proverbs? It's a great habit to get into if you've not really read very practical wisdom there. And ton of it, tons of it is, guess what? It's about money. How are you going to use what you have? That all still applies. One of the things that the scripture says in Proverbs chapter 3, it says that we should honor the Lord with the first fruits of our increase. So if we're Jesus followers, that what that means is as, the, as we are increased with something, as money comes in, monthly, weekly, whenever it comes in, we say, okay, Lord, the first part of this goes to you. What do you want it to have? How much is that first fruit and where does it go? That's, that's a standard that's Old Testament that still applies. It's still the standard. Jesus uh, uh, is not talking here specifically about tithing. And we know that he's not specifically talking about tithing because the Pharisees were meticulous tithers, weren't they? They tithed 10% of their herb garden just to make sure that they were doing what they're supposed to do. That's what they did. Now, now the, the, the thing is, what he's saying here, though, is that the truth still remains. What God says about these things still remains. In fact, what he does in verse 18 is kind of expose how these Pharisees would say, oh, I'm really concerned about tithing. I, I, we really, we're about God's law. But then when it came to other issues, maybe not so much. This is why he says in this context, verse 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman uh, divorced from her husband commits adultery. So just to be really clear here, this is not all the scripture says about uh, divorce and marriage. But Jesus is basically confronting the hypocrisy of the Pharisees who would say kind of like, oh, we got to make sure that we take a little bit of this, this mint and just 10% off. What? Okay, there's how many leaves? 10% of that would be, okay, yeah, we'll give that to God. But then when it says, when, when your wife bothers you, you say, okay, you're out of here. I, I want to divorce you. They're totally missing the whole point of why God gives his law. That's the, the point that he's trying to make. How do we... Are we trying to justify what we do? Or are we trying to please God with what we do? That's the principle. 
See, Jesus says it in this in Matthew chapter 5, remember? He says, do not think that I've come to abolish uh, the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And as we'll see in a minute, where we failed to do this, Jesus succeeds. So that's the second principle, right? The first one being when it comes to wrestling with the love of God versus the kingdom, or love of money versus the kingdom of God, is, is that it's not what we have, but how we use it. The second principle is it's not what we justify, but what actually pleases God. And the third one is this. It's not really about our earthly experience, but it is about the, our eternal reality. And now we're going to see Jesus tells not a parable, but an application or an example story about a rich man and a man named Lazarus. So let's pick it up in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid the poor man Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes uh, and, and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now when we read this, it's important that we understand what Jesus is doing. Jesus is using a common understanding, the common Jewish understanding of the afterlife to communicate eternal realities. He's not, this is not uh, some sort of made-up mythology that Jesus is bringing forth. He's not just trying to, to bring a morality story. He's trying to bring a reality story. Here's really what happens. Now, the Jewish tradition was this, okay? The Jewish tradition was, and it is that when someone dies, they go to a place called Sheol. You read this in the Psalms, you see this word Sheol. Sometimes it's, it's translated grave. Even occasionally it's translated hell. But in the Jewish mindset, Sheol was kind of a, a, a temporary holding tank with two compartments. One would be paradise, where those who had the faith like Abraham would go, awaiting for the final judgment and the reward in heaven. The other would be this place called Sheol or Hades, which would be the place that those who didn't die in faith would go, awaiting for the final judgment and torment. And so Jesus isn't denying the reality of this. He's contrasting these two things and the two kinds of people who might be there. And what he does is he, he contrasts this, this rich man who's unnamed. And one of the reasons he's probably unnamed is because it could be any of us. The, how this rich man lives compared to how this man Lazarus uh, lives. And by the way, Lazarus' is name, when, this is one of the reasons we don't believe this is a parable, but Lazarus' name... This is not the Lazarus who, who Jesus resurrected in John chapter 11, just to be clear, okay? But Lazarus is named because, listen, his name means God is my help. That's why he's named. That's why that name is used. But, but here's what we see. The rich man is described, is, is experiencing this almost like king-like indulgence, clothed in purple, specifically a purple that was really hard to get to. It came from the, the shells of this rare mollusk that they would grind up, and only very wealthy people were clothed in purple. It says purple and fine linen. The idea of fine linen there could mean that even his underwear were expensive. That's awkward. That's what it probably means. And he feasted sumptuously every single day. Now, I don't know if we all realize this or not, 
But the way we tend to eat is, is, is unlike anybody 150 years ago except royalty. It was only royalty and the upper class that ate as much meat as we have, ate as often as we had, ate the variety we have. We live in such a way, even the poorest among us, seriously, and I know there's a whole, and our servant church is a whole demographic. We have people that are much, make much less money than, than our household does and much more money than our household does and everyone in between, all right? There's a huge demographic there. But even the poorest among us, guess what? We eat better and live in more comfort than kings did 200 years ago. Now, this is not to make us feel guilty, but it's just to put into perspective our lives and the fact that we are tempted to focus on getting more. Isn't this what we do? We think we'll be happy if we can just get a little more. Now, compare this to Lazarus. Lazarus is a poor man, so poor that he's dependent upon others to give him he has no way to make his own means, right? Uh, the idea that he's laid at, at, at the rich man's gate means that either he's so weak or he's crippled. He has to, someone else has to put him there. He'd be happy to get what the poor man would, or the rich man would give him, but um, it seems like the rich man didn't really give him anything. And this idea of the dogs coming and licking the sores, don't think, oh, sweet little puppy, licking the poor wounded man. Think wild dogs who are looking for their next meal. Think Dogs who would eat dead animals, therefore making themselves being ceremonially unclean and making anyone they touched ceremonially unclean. In other words, there's no area of Lazarus's life where there wasn't suffering involved. Let me ask you this. If it comes to king-like indulgence or all-encompassing suffering, which would you choose? And so what happens is we, we see that that that, that when it comes to these guys who had such radically different lives, they both died. Death is the great equalizer, isn't it? Every one person out of one person dies. Death is the great equalizer. Now the reason I'm saying this is not to be morbid or, or to be trite about death. I'm saying this because one of the things that we have to understand about Jesus is that there's no way we can read stuff like this and go, he was just a good teacher. Because the whole, his whole principle about putting the poor, considering the needs of the poor, about being willing to, to, to sell all you have and give to the poor, as he says in another place in the Gospels, this idea of, of, of investing in eternity only makes sense, guess what, if there's an eternity. It only makes sense if he's risen from the dead. If he hasn't risen from the dead, he's a nutcase. It doesn't make any sense. Why would you want to suffer why would you want to give things up for others if when you die, that's it? You lost your chance for that pleasure. In fact, the scripture even says that's the truth. The scripture says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if there is no resurrection, that we as Jesus followers who are seeking to live like this, that we are among men the most pitiable. Now, the reason it's important to see that Jesus is giving this reality story about these two men who live radically different lives, but both died is that eternity is a reality, and it's meant to be a motivator for us. Verse 24, and, and this rich man who's in this place of torment called out, Father Abraham, 
Have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in the flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you uh, may not be able, and uh, none may cross from there to us. Now, what's happening here, and again, Jesus is using a common understanding to, to, to confirm an eternal reality, is Jesus is literally confirming the afterlife is experienced as either comfort or anguish. That's what he's saying. That's sobering thing, it's sobering to think about, isn't it? He's basically saying, okay, you have here the rich man who had his life that seemed to be pretty good for a long time. He was really comfortable. He, didn't, he could ignore the suffering around him. And guess what? He's now in eternal anguish. And this poor man, Lazarus, who suffered in every way possible, it, it seemed like his life would never end. And when he finally dies, guess what he's experiencing? Eternal comfort. Let me ask you again, which would you choose? When it comes to their two stories, would you choose their king, the king-like indulgence, his king-like indulgence of the rich man, or the all-encompassing suffering of Lazarus? Which would you choose, eternal anguish or eternal comfort? Now, Jesus is not teaching every rich man suffers and every poor man goes to heaven. That's not what he's teaching. But what he is teaching is this. He's saying that what happens to us after we live is affected in some way by what we do with our finances, our time, our treasure, our talent now. That there's eternal repercussions to how we live our lives. Interesting, what also, when he says here, he talks about this great chasm. He's basically saying this, that the fate of the dead is irreversible. There's a uh, a teaching uh, uh, within Christian church that's getting more and more popular. Uh, it, was, it was kind of, I guess, alluded to in, in, the, in the 1980s cartoon called All Dogs Go to Heaven. I don't know if you've watched that masterpiece, but it's not really all that great. But the idea, all dogs go to heaven, everyone loves this idea. I mean, everyone loves the idea that ultimately everyone goes to heaven. You, go to, you can go to a funeral for the, very, the most vehement atheist, and the vicar will say, oh, their, their suffering is ended, they're now in glory. What? They didn't even believe in any of that stuff. And we have this mindset that's, that's like this, but Jesus, and this is not my words, Jesus seems to be saying so clearly, no, once you're dead, that's it. Now, this is going to be important as we come to the end. We get to verse 27, and what happens? It says, and this rich man in this place of anguish, he said, then I beg you, Father, to send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. The idea there is the rich man recognizes his five brothers are just uh, as much lovers of money than he is. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Actually, before I go on to that, let me just bring something clear. Again, Jesus, I'm not trying to be trite here. I don't believe Jesus was trying to be trite here about the fate 
uh, uh, our eternal fate or destiny, or what happens to us when we die. But, but here's what's interesting to me. That here you have, Jesus is, is talking about this rich man who's in this place of anguish. He's separated from God. He's not in, in, in the place of Abraham's, but he's not in the place of the faithful. He's separated. And what does he want? He wants to make sure that no one comes to the place where he is. I've had to do funerals, uh, unfortunately, many times for people who apparently weren't believers. And it's a really, especially when you didn't know the people, it's really difficult to do those. And this is always where I take them because here's what I'm sure that Jesus is teaching here. I'm sure Jesus is teaching no matter where people go when they die, whether they go into paradise to be with God forever or they go into this place of torment to, to be separated from God forever, no matter where they go, they want us to know the truth. They want us to know the truth. That what we do with this life matters. That eternity is real. Now, so he says, uh, when, when he asked for this to happen, Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them, verse 29. And he said, no, but Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now remember, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees who strongly believe, supposedly, the, the Moses and the prophets. And ironically, they're going to demand that he be crucified. And ironically, when he's crucified and then buried and then resurrects, they're not going to believe it. And what he's basically saying is they don't believe it because they don't actually believe what God's word says. Now what he's doing here is Jesus is confirming that the scripture is sufficient to develop in us a saving faith. If eternity is so important, why do we spend so much time reading this book? Because eternity is so important. We study what God says because we want to know the God of this book. We want to know what he'd have us do with our lives, how he would have us invest in other people. What does that look like? We want to know that. And we believe that what God says is enough to build in us a saving faith, a confidence that God, what God has done for us through Christ is enough, a confidence that he's worthy to be followed. We'll talk more about that reality that of the sufficiency of Scripture to develop in us a saving faith when we get to the end of Luke's gospel. But for now, I want to just kind of close with this, and maybe you guys can come back up and we'll get ready to, to sing this song sing a closing song. We'll get ready to kind of take communion together in just a minute. But as we're getting ready to do that, I want to... I'm going to read these verses to you from Hebrews chapter 9. It says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, just as we said before, there's the fate of the dead is irreversible. God says this is how it works. We die, we face judgment. What we've done with this life, we, whether it was in faith, uh, wanting to please God, or for ourselves, wanting to please ourselves. Once we die, then comes judgment. He says, so Christ, listen, so Christ, having been offered once, that is on the cross, to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, that is, not to die again, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. What does it look like to eagerly wait for Christ to come? For one, listen, it looks like 
us saying, Lord, what do you want me to do with my time, treasure, and talent? But also, it's to recognize just what the author of Hebrews says here. Christ died once to bear my sins. I don't have to do something. In fact, I cannot do something to add to his finished work. All I can do is to respond to him in gratitude. And to say, Lord, you've given me everything that I have, including my salvation. And that is the one thing I can possess as mine forever. I think it's appropriate for us to do something, especially in preparing our hearts to go to the Lord's table. It's appropriate for us to take a little bit of time here and to think about, to think about, are we more of those who are lovers of money or those who are living for the kingdom of God? It's a time for us to think about Lord, do, do I pray your will be done, your kingdom come, including over my finances? Or do I say, Lord, you can have Sunday, but the rest of it's mine. Lord, here's your tip that I'll put in the offering box, but the rest of it's mine. Lord, I'll say how sad it is that um, I'll give some old clothes to a charity shop because it's so sad that these people in poor countries suffer, but the rest of it's mine. How do we respond to these things? So let's just take a minute to be still and let's ask God to show us, Lord, where have we been good stewards of what you've given us and where have we been poor stewards? To ask the Lord to show us if we are using our time, treasure, and talent to actually prepare for eternity. Let's just take a minute to do that. Father, we thank you so much for sending Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that that, that your word teaches us that he being rich, Jesus having all the riches of heaven, that came to this earth and became poor, that we might become rich in him. That he gave up the riches of heaven and died a criminal and pauper's death that we might be forgiven, that we might be made whole, that you would be pleased with our hearts, that we would both believe that you've died once for all. Your your death pays for all the bad stewardship that we've been guilty of. And that that your death and resurrection and your sent Holy Spirit is, is enough. He will change us and teach us how to be those that don't love money, but are living and seeking first the kingdom of God. Father, I pray that our hearts would be thankful and that we would just, Lord, do what your word says, that we would remember 
Christ's death until he comes. Remember the sufficiency of your death until you return to us, Lord. Bless our time as we do this. In Jesus' name, amen. None of us here are as faithful with what God's given us as we should be. But our faith is not meant to be in our faithfulness, but God's faithfulness to us. It's his faithfulness to us that motivates us to change. It's his faithfulness to us that means we can know that we're forgiven. All right? Stay today. Have some tea and some coffee, and we will talk to the rest of you soon.